This pandemic has exposed governments and their public health authorities and advisory boards like nothing else. Putting aside the disastrous lockdowns and incompetence in dealing with COVID-19, a travesty currently playing out is that while lives are being lost, early treatment of COVID-19 using inexpensive and well-known drugs is being rejected in advanced countries such as the US, Britain and Australia. Worse still, eminent doctors who have used a range of safe drugs with stunning success have been threatened, censored and renounced by the medical institutions that employ them. Governments, public health authorities, associated medical, big pharma advisors, mainstream media and big tech are the chief censors. Now, the cornerstone of democracy is free speech. If free speech now has conditions to it, well, it's no longer free. If we can't discuss all things COVID without fear, then free speech is dead. The stories of early treatment success will not only go away, and at some point there'll be a reckoning, providing we keep asking questions and the media starts to do its job. Trish Wood is an award-winning investigative journalist who has come to her own conclusions in one of her recent podcasts, which features yet another example of medical censorship involving the low-cost drug ivermectin and the author of a review that won't see the light of day. Let me quote from TrishWoodPodcast.com. Award-winning journo Trish Wood thinks critically about the world, true crime, wrongful convictions, epic media fails, addiction, the gender wars, and at times basketball. Trish has been exposing dangerous groupthink and injustice for decades and does it while digging deep with guests and navigating the hidden corners of the human psyche. Trish Wood from the Trish Wood Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Nice to be here. How are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, air conditioning is working well today. Uh, we did one yesterday Good. and it, it went south. Believe me, it was very warm. Um, now, tell us about your award-winning journalism background, including in science and medical reporting. Right. So I guess that's germane in the sense that it's one of the reasons I started the podcast. I'd been working in true crime for years and had a, a very good life doing that. I kind of ran my own show and worked when I wanted to and and took time off with my, I was a single mother, so I took time off for my children when I wanted to as well. But when, well, when 2016 happened and the media began to turn into advocates politically um, and to really become extremely biased in their coverage of many things, not the least of which, of course, was Russiagate, um, which is how I now judge journalists about what their position was on Russiagate. But for me, it really solidified when COVID hit that we had a problem, that journalism was failing. My view is, Mike, that Virtually everything that's wrong, the big problems that are wrong in the world right now, especially in Western countries, is because journalism is massively, massively failing. And that became really apparent for me through the coverage of COVID. You asked about my experience. I covered uh, some of the early days of AIDS, you know, in the late 80s. Um, I spent a couple years covering that. I was covering science more generally. I learned how to read uh, a science paper, how to judge a review, how to judge uh, scientific protocols doing that. I think every journalist should know those things, especially now. Um, and then later on, I did a lot of um, products liability reporting on things where products and pharmaceuticals had gone wrong and it was necessary for journalists who were doing investigative work like me to step in and do that reporting. We did breast implants, we did asbestos causing cancer, we did a whole bunch of things that regulatory agencies and industry were not good at finding. Remember cigarette smoking. So now we live in a time where journalists seem to feel that their role is not to critique, it's not to ask hard questions, which is what I learned in covering those stories for 
30 years virtually. It's that they're there to amplify the message of the bureaucratic powers that be in science and the pharmaceutical companies and the people kind of in the circle around the policy that's being made around COVID in Washington, D.C. But of course, that also drips over to uh, London, England and Toronto, Canada, where I am. I don't hear people asking Tony Fauci and public health officials hard questions at these uh, conferences and around the policies that are being made. They're just not doing it. And You know, as someone who had the luxury of being an investigative reporter, I was paid well. We had long production times. We were given the best researchers in the world. I understand why daily news reporters who are covering COVID are struggling. I'm not sure they know they're struggling. I think history will tell us they struggled because they're definitely failing. They don't have the time to do the kind of work that I did. But what they can do is that they can ask hard questions. I'll I'll give you an example. We have two public health officials in Canada who are hell-bent on keeping us locked down, regardless of what is happening with what they call community spread. One of them is locking us down because she has a bad feeling about the variants. That's all she said. Mm. She didn't provide a scientific paper or offer any data on what that might mean to us here in Toronto. She just is worried. And then on a, on a national level, we have a public health official who provided a, it was almost laughable. It was so out of kilter with what everybody else is saying, a model which showed COVID not coming down, but in the future, shooting up like a rocket. It's actually called the rocket ship Mm. model now in the media here. And people should have been saying to her, where's the data on that? Please supply the data on that. They should have asked in Toronto, supply the data. But reporters aren't doing that. They're not asking those hard questions. Why would that be? You know, it's a good question. I think there is probably a generational difference in how, and I've just come to this because I spend a lot of time wondering why it is the way it why it is the, the way it is right now I, I mean i do think one of them is that the media turned itself upside down to get donald trump out of office at any cost mm. i am not a conservative and i wouldn't have voted for donald trump but i will say that what i think the media did in order to get him out of office which was cover stories that weren't true, break all the rules around journalism, relying on unnamed sources who were wrong over and over and over again. I was watching that happen and think, you know, you you may think because you hate him so much that you're doing a service for the country, but what they did was ruin their own credibility. Mm. And so I think that that may have uh, kind of leaked over into coverage of COVID, if you remember watching the early news conferences that they had, the White House press conferences with both Trump and Fauci and Dr. Burks, it seemed like a a race to to determine who could make the administration look bad first. Mm. Right? They were not asking hard questions about the data that was being presented. So I think that's part of it. I think it's a a kind of a a residual effect from the let's get Trump media. It was appalling though. The, um, I mean, I've been in the media for a long, long time, uh, about as old as Methuselah just about. But I just, I have, I've never seen this frenzy of these wolves frothing at the mouth, wanting, wanting that, as you said, that, that gotcha moment, that gotcha question. And it's not just in, in Canada and it was not just in the US. It was in Australia, New Zealand, uh, just just about everywhere. And the critical questions that needed to be asked weren't being asked. Uh, and you just look at the, um, once Donald Trump had gone, I mean, look at what happened with Joe Biden. What colour are you going to do the plane in? in I mean, th- <laughs> it was just terrible. Um, tell us about your walk in the park. I mean, where were the, especially at the height of, you know, inverted commas, the pandemic, I mean, where were the critical questions, the important questions? They just yeah. weren't there. 
No, they absolutely weren't there. And if you'll also notice the difference in the way they treated Tony Fauci, too, this is a big problem for me. And and I'll tell you why. When I was covering AIDS, Tony Fauci was running the show. And there were literally people with AIDS, these brave young gay men, these activists who took control of a disease that was absolutely a death sentence in the early days. They were dropping like flies. I knew them. I became friends with many of them, and I admired them very much. They were chaining themselves to the fence at the NIH with signs saying, Fauci is a murderer. Mm. So this is obviously, you know, protest hyperbole. That was not true. But his record then does seem to be playing itself out again here, and I'll explain what I mean by that. I just did a big... Uh, bunch of reporting on my Twitter about this drug ivermectin and a study that um, seems to suggest, does suggest, that it's a, a quite a good drug in the treatment and prophylaxis of COVID. Controversial. But I've read the paper. The doctors seem credible. They're using it in their clinics. And one of the things we learned from AIDS, or we should have learned, is that the best treatments often come from the guys on the front and female doctors too on the front line treating patients. And the information about ivermectin is coming from clinicians, but the bureaucrats in DC don't seem to want to hear it. All they would, if they believe it's true and can Mm. be convinced that it's true, all they have to do is say, look, these guys, these doctors are having, some good luck with this, try it. It's got a reasonably good safety profile. There's not much to lose. We had a very similar thing happen back in the AIDS times with a drug called Bactrim um, as a prophylax for something called PCP, which is pneumocystis carini pneumonia. It was the big killer of men with AIDS. No question about it. If you got it, it was virtually a death sentence. Uh, A friend of mine who had AIDS in those days actually died of PCP. He went from diagnosis to death in about four days. And the clinicians learned on the front line that if you give someone who's had PCP and survived it, PCP as a prophylax, it prevented them from getting it again. Very, very big breakthrough. Very, very big. And here's what happened. A guy named Michael Callan, who I know he was a friend of mine. He was the the longest living AIDS survivor at that time. He and some other uh, people involved in the fight for people to know about Bactrim, this game-changing therapy, prophylax, went to see Tony Fauci at the NIH, and they begged him. They begged him to put out some kind of a notice to tell clinicians around the country that Bactrim can work as a prophylax against PCP. And Tony Fauci refused to do it. He wanted more data. And this is has always bothered me, and here's why. Michael Callan gave me what I believe was his last interview about three or four years after he'd been to see Tony Fauci about Bactrim and PCP. And one of the things of many things about the way that AIDS was mishandled uh, that bothered him as he was facing his own demise was that Tony Fauci would not put that notification out for two years as he waited for data. And I believe this detail was between 1987 and 1989. They wouldn't put the notice out. They were still collecting data. And I believe the number is 17,000 people died who wouldn't have died if they'd been having access to Bactrim as a drug through their clinicians. So it feels like maybe the same thing is playing out all over again. There's a, They want more data, more trials, better trials. And I understand why they want that. But if clinicians are seeing a good result and there's good data saying that it works that way, why wouldn't they recommend ivermectin? It makes no sense. And yet, and yet, remdesivir, which is a big, expensive, I think it's $2,700 a a trial, a treatment of it, was rushed into use as a therapeutic, and Tony Fauci said it was the new standard of care and published in many 
publications. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering now, like we, it, it's, it didn't work. It's, it's super controversial right now. There's a lot of really smart people saying remdesivir does not work. It does not slow or stop death in people with COVID-19. So you have to wonder, how does this happen? And part of it is, Mike, these people don't admit mistakes, mm. right? You, you've seen Fauci flip-flop on a mm. number of things over the course of... They don't admit mistakes. And the other thing that they don't do is they don't really supply data, as I said earlier, for for some of the things that they are asking us to do and ways that they're asking us to live now, as a result. S- speaking of the data, you have some projects. Uh, demand the, uh, as they say, North America data, and down under we say data, and the, the, the critical list, why are they so important to you? I, mean, I, can, I can understand, you know, especially the demand the data because we have governments all over the world uh, who do it, as you were saying, with one of your politicians, they have a feeling. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah, they have a feel. Yeah, like, I mean, Boris Johnson, mm. I mean, they're all doing this. Look at who's helping to run Boris Johnson's COVID policy, right? Neil Ferguson, the guy whose model, I know he was off by what, 2 million people or Mm. something, but they never, there's no retribution. There's Mm. no, we don't think this guy knows what he's doing. There's none of that. He's still advising, as I understand it, Sage, that medical group. So you really have to wonder well, this is probably for another show, but who's governing us? You know, how smart are these people? What agendas have they got going on? Why would you keep a guy who was off by so much on your advisory panel, right? And when, it's another reason to demand the data, when people got the data under his early, of his early modeling, which came out of uh, Imperial College in London, the one that Fauci and Burks used to convince Trump to lock down, mm. that was the study, when the data that underpinned that came out, people who looked at it said it was garbage. Mm. So, so data is your friend. Do not be afraid of data. You are entitled to know when your health bureaucrats and your politicians are locking you down again or doing something that makes no sense, like closing restaurants. Ask them for the data. You are entitled for that information. Ask for the data around PCR test false positives. This is another issue that has never been adjudicated properly in a public forum, which is the PCR tests, they're now saying to run them at a lower cycle threshold, Mm. which means that tests that were running at a higher threshold were delivering false positives. When are we going to have a data adjudication of that? And how many false positive cases have we, or not cases, let's say false positive test results, they aren't cases, how many of those have we lived with having the news media blasting us? Day, you know, 10,000 new cases today. How many of those were false positives? We have a right to know. We have a right to know um, why gyms are closed. Have they teased out the numbers between what may happen as a, an infectious vector in a gym versus why all of us are now fat mm-hmm. and out of shape and in much worse, you know, much bigger trouble if we <laughs> happen to get the virus, right? I want that data. I want the data on children, why children still aren't in schools. The data says they should be in schools. Mm-hmm. So if people are keeping them out, then demand the data. So here's what we're doing. It's kind of a silly little thing, but I feel... Maybe it's going to empower some people. This is the button. It's called Demand the Data. We're sending them out to people who join us on Patreon. And if you want more than one, I'll send you more. Because I think reporters should be demanding the the data. I think you all should be demanding the data. Everybody out there, you have a right to know the basis on which... Uh, these policies that are affecting our lives so much are being made, and that's not being done right now. The it's, but it's you know, sure we want the data or data, but <laughs> but the the big big tech mainstream media, which are all you know on behalf of someone else or or a government, don't want you to have the data, and then comes censorship. They shut you down, make you look like a wacko, or say that. Uh, these are the facts, and if you were to disagree with that, 
They would shut you down, call you a wacko, etc., etc. Um, and look at Google with their algorithms that you can, you know, you can put in um, dog, for example, and if they don't like that word dog on that particular website, they're going to move you right back to 10, 15 pages back and no one's ever going to see you. So yeah. the, the problem with the data, you know, it's sure we want the data. The government, I know in Australia, and you look at the US through Fauci and those, they don't really want you to have that data because if you no. had that data... You wouldn't have the lockdowns. You'd have early treatment, which uh, P- uh, Professor Peter McCullough and uh, Dr. Um, Vladimir Zelenko have both said it's 84 to 85% um, effective. Uh, in other words, less wow. hospitalizations, less death. You mentioned, with, um, we'll get on to him in a second, uh, Dr. Paul Marek said 74%. Well, it's actually 84 or 85%. So all this information should be made available. It should be out there now, and we should be using it because it saves lives, and they don't want you to have that data. So is there, is, we're sort of getting off the topic here a little bit, but okay. is there something else at play? Well, one thing that sort of has occurred to me in the past couple of weeks is the idea that I think now that our leaders and the people who advise them are maybe coming to believe on some level that this has been a big mistake. Meaning, you know, like if you look back, I think history will look back on this and say that this was a big, a bigger public policy mistake than the Vietnam War. If you mm. look really at what's being done to people's lives. And I, I, I also think maybe they're, they're waking up to the idea that what we're seeing in the downside of this, which is, suicides addicts don't have their 12-step meetings they isolation kills us we know that i mean i'm a little crazy right now myself Mm. just from being kind of locked away in my apartment ask my husband i mean we're we're all kind of nuts um people not getting their cancer treatments and surgeries like this is a people at the great barrington declaration who we had on the show and whom i greatly admire because they've been uh, attacked in the worst ad hominem way who say focused protection, right? This is the only illness in the history of the world where healthy people are locked down uh, in order to protect people who will get sick and die. We know who is going to get sick and die. Most mm. of them are in long-term care and we still haven't figured that out yet. So, so, so why are we locking down my 20 year old young, fit, healthy neighbor because somebody in long-term care 20 miles away is going to get sick and die if they get covid right the nefarious idea behind what they're doing is when they do they use this phrase community spread and they say long-term care can't ever be safe as long as there's community spread this is nonsense what they should be doing is circling wagons around the long-term care homes keeping the staff there so they're not going in and out until the virus has worked itself through Mm. right so what i'm saying is i think maybe as they're waking up they're starting to realize what a screw-up this is and i will say this and you know if somebody wants to take me on over it that's fine but i'll say it I think that part of what's being done now is about covering their asses as much as it is a response to COVID. I think there's a panic going on. Mm. I think they're worried about how history will look at this and, and their actions around it. And I, as much as I'm depressed by the state of journalism today, uh, this story is going to be told one way or the other. And it may be told by people who one day just stitch together your show and my podcast and what Glenn Greenwald does and what AJK does. She's a very good uh, COVID reporter and Alex Berenson. Maybe someone will just take everything we said and put it together in a big film that will expose what happened. But there's an element of uh, moral panic, I think, that drives this. And I will never, ever forget when this is over, if it's ever over, they keep moving the goalposts, mm. but I will never forget how people living through this have been utterly disabled and maybe permanently so by the fear 
porn, the constant, constant pushing of worst case scenarios, of outlier cases. You know, the Daily Mail was terrible at this. They'd run a story, 20-year-old bodybuilder dies of COVID with no pre-existing conditions. I, I would like to do a kind of a forensic analysis of that, what was actually happening there. But that aside, this is a this is an outlier case. But by running that, the media have been complicit in the government mm. making us all terrified. And I pass people on the street who jump away from me like I'm radio, radioactive, even in a mask. I have a housekeeper, an elderly housekeeper, who's worked for me for 22 years. Remember the family? She won't leave her apartment. Ever. I don't think she will ever leave her apartment. So that is also something they need to answer to because we know that in public health, you do not seek compliance through fear. You don't do that. That is the wrong approach. Mm. And that's what they've been doing here. So to answer your question, why are they doing it? What's going on now? I think there's a lot of cover your ass going on right now. And I think the vaccine may get us out of it because they can say, oh, look, the vaccine's working. See, we didn't, isn't that great? Mm. We don't have to lock you down anymore. But I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how these people sleep at night, Mike. I, I don't. And um, I've had some dark days myself as a result of watching how easy it is to convince people to punish, rat out your neighbor to ignore people who are sick and struggling from other things beside COVID. I've seen this happening with public health officials, with my frightened neighbors. It's It's been very emotional for me to watch it. I can't explain it. it it's like the Stanford experiment on steroids right now. Uh, Professor McCullough said the, the uh, scenario, which is now coming to fruition, is that yeah. there are these other strains, so you're going to need boosters. <laughs> for these yeah. other strains. So what will happen is they'll lock you down because yeah. there's this other strain out there, yet while at the same time ignoring early treatment. But no one's going to see that because you have this intense censorship and uh, mm. bullying from the media and from bureaucracy, yeah. and it is intense yeah. bullying. I've never seen anything like this in my life, and I hate bullying. I think it's one of the... It, it just shuts down all sorts of discussion. Um, and, Speaking of censorship, uh, on one of your recent episodes, um, you had uh, you spoke to Dr. Paul Marrick. Uh, yeah. Uh, what was, say, the the most important takeaway from from that? Because his experience, what a whole bunch of scientists have experienced. But what did you take away from that? Uh, it scared me. I'll, I'll be honest with you. It scared me because uh, he is a clear headed, honourable person who works as a clinician like the guys did back in the days of AIDS. He knows what works with his with his patients. He's honorable. He gets nothing out of this. They did a paper. I read the paper. From my perspective, it seems fine. It went through, I believe he said, four official peer reviews and was going to be published in a journal. So what happened was I saw the Daily Mail did a story about the study before uh, like a week ago or something, saying it was going to be published. So I was like, oh, my God, I wasn't going to do it that day on my podcast. But I saw I was doing something else, but I saw this. I look, 75% or whatever the number, preventable deaths, this is a game changer. we got to change the show and do this. So I called Paul Merrick's office. I, he came out of ICU later in the day and did a long interview with me about it. And the end of the interview, he said, oh, we're not being published now. They've mm. pulled the study, mm. right? And I was like, what? So then over the weekend, then they got word that maybe it was back on. So we did some reporting on Twitter. Wow, Twitter is like the main journalism place right now, sadly. Um, and then today it was finally pulled permanently. I saw, I, I saw, just to be clear here, I saw both the acceptance letter when it was accepted for publication. I have it. And I saw the rejection letter that came finally today mm. and the reasons for it, which are, I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not. But what they're saying is, let me just put it this way. It doesn't make any sense to me what they're saying about why they actually pulled this 
this thing. But but Dr. Merrick's been, he's had videos pulled before from YouTube, so this is not new. And my question to all of the big tech companies who censor these discussions is, how are you going to feel and what is your responsibility going to be when and if mainstream, not even mainstream, these are mainstream doctors, but when 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 the power doctors in Washington have to admit, if in fact it is what they say it is, that it works. How are you, as people who were censoring this information from clinicians who can accept or reject whether they use it based on what they're seeing, how are you going to feel about all the people who died if and then they couldn't get it because you censored that information like this is i keep using the thalidomide analogy because you know it it was such an extreme product such an extreme mistake actually tested in the nazi death camp so it was like an awful product mm. it made it to market it was used by women in everywhere but the states uh, ironically they didn't pass it but it took uh, an Australian physician named Dr. McBride, who was an obstetrician, who was writing and alerting people in the news, this drug is a problem. Babies are being born with massive limb reduction deformities, right? And that spread around the world yeah. through the news, as well as other channels. If he had been censored, right, if Kimi Grunenthal had gotten to big tech and said, this guy's a nut, has nothing to do with our product, that could have gone on for another decade. Yep. So, so, so it, you cannot just media is there. It's complicated, I know, for the big tech guys. You know, they're linear, mathematical thinkers. They may not understand how uh, a healthy, aggressive press works to push back on mistakes that are made, both innocently and not so innocently. And they they better get it together because what they're doing now with this censorship uh, will be viewed, I think, by history very, very. Uh, dangerously. It will be seen as very dangerous. Ivermectin is a, a very inexpensive product to make. Um, yeah. The vaccine at this stage for, ne for the next 20 years is not, a, is not inexpensive. It's quite expensive. So yeah. when they say it ain't about the money, <laughs> it is about the money. Uh, do you think there's a, a medical media cartel operating for COVID-19? Because if what I'm saying is correct, that it is about the money, because one costs a few cents to make. Yeah, a few cents. And yeah. the other costs yeah. whatever it costs. There's contracts for billions and billions of dollars. And then you have the booster that is needed for the Martian strain that's just come off Uranus. <laughs> If you think about that, I mean, I'm not going to go there at all, and neither should you. Um, well, China, China, but that's all. China, China's yeah. Been yeah, that's all I'm going to say. Yeah, no, or Wuhan. I mean, but, uh, you know, I believe, by the way, it's a sidebar here, Your Honour, I believe that the, the bats are real. And at the same time, I saw a couple of pigs fly by. So we yeah. won't go any further about, further about those flying pigs, but they, um, they were about the same time when they were saying that the bats did it. Uh, yeah, the but bats did do you think, though, there is this media, medical media cartel operating to extend the longevity, longevity of, um, of the pandemic? Well, you know, it feels that way. Um, that's a, an extraordinary thing to say. But when you look at just the facts of mm. how things happened and how they're happening, none of it, none of it makes any sense. Big Pharma is powerful. They buy ads on all the mainstream media, all the TV shows. I mean, my God, they, you know, I know every new pharmaceutical products theme song in my head, you know, because they run them over and over again. And, um, you know, I, I feel part of it is group think. Uh, I don't think they have meetings at CNN where they say, okay, you know, this pharmaceutical company doesn't want us to do a story on ivermectin. I don't think it works that way. I think it's more subtle. I think it's group thinking. And I think part of it is that people who do these kind of more organic scientific studies are not embraced by uh, the big scientific bureaucracies. In other words, if, if Fauci wanted to give ivermectin a little push, CNN would be all over it. Mm. 
but he's not. So they're taking their cues from orthodoxy, and orthodoxy takes its cues. I think we've got to say it to some degree from Big Pharma. Look, they buy everybody in Washington. They're massive donors, aren't they? Mm. You know, the medical, the insurance companies are one of the reasons that Americans still don't have a decent health care system. So it's all part of it. But, you know, in, in where I am and in London, you know, there's less of that. But I do, I do just feel we're living in a strange time where reporters feel the only true thing comes from a politician's mouth or a bureaucrat's mouth, as long as they're on the left. Um, and, and that's kind of where we are now. We're in a very, very dangerous situation. I think we would have been much farther along in treating COVID in a more sensible way, i.e. focused protection, mm. if the media had not been so adverse to that. And what they do instead is they attack people. Mm. They attack people who suggest things that are not what is coming out of the NIH and the CDC. And the CDC has made a botch of COVID anyway. I mean, my goodness, mm. they have too. But, you know, I just want to say this about my little data rant, which I'm going to hold up my button again, <laughs> um, is that we don't even know. I want you to really take this on, Mike. We don't even know how many people have actually died from COVID. I live in a city where it's been reported out and admitted that if people commit suicide and they've had a positive COVID test, they're counted, mm. right? We, they're doing a big thing in London right now where people whose relatives died of other things but had had a positive COVID test and were counted as a COVID death, they're now coming forward and saying, my relative didn't die of COVID. They mm. lied on the on the death certificate. So we don't even know that. Like we don't have an information baseline through which to judge the experience in which we're living. And I feel very strongly that's one of the reasons we're all going nuts. Part of it is the lockdown. And part of it is getting a fire hose of information that either makes no sense, doesn't reflect what we're seeing in our daily lives or is an outright lie or worse even for some people if you watch cnn and switch to fox news what they're saying is so different mm. and both sides are saying it's true how does the average person navigate that right so here we come to the critical list which you asked me about and i didn't have a chance to respond to if i could i'd be grateful the critical list came about as Many people who listen to our show were saying, okay, Trish, you know all this stuff. You find all these stories. Where do you get them from? And I realized that there's a big need for curated media that does not uh, hold tight to an, an ideology. So what you will find on the critical list, which I curate on my webpage, which is trishwoodpodcast.com, is sources of news, uh, editorial writers, individual ind indie journalists, many of these people are self-funding, who don't cleave to one side, left or right, and who in fact will report things that if they are maybe left-leaning in their lives, is actually bad for the political party they might vote for. And one of the people is Matt Taibbi, who I think is probably left of center, uh, but yet he took down the Russia hoax. People who took, the lefties who took down the Russia hoax as journalists have paid a very, very heavy price for that. They were courageous, as was Steve Cohen, the Russia expert who is, was married, he died recently, but he was married to the woman who edits uh, the Nation magazine, massively progressive, massively pushed the Russia, Russiagate story. Uh, and yet he, as the preeminent Russia expert in America, would go on TV when asked to say it's all bullshit, none of it's true, uh, it's not, it didn't happen, here's why. So these are the voices that need to be amplified for people right now, people they can trust, even if they don't agree with them. People have to get out of their siloed media. They have to be uncomfortable. I know I say things on the show sometimes that I believe are true, and I warn people and say, you might not like, like, once in a while I'll defend Donald Trump, right? It's not someone I would vote for, but 
It's You have to tell the truth about everybody all the time. You can't just say, I'm going to tell the truth about this guy, but I don't like this guy, so it's okay to lie about him. Journalists can't do that. It ruins the institution. It has ruined the institution. Mm. So the critical list was born of requests I had from people saying, please help us find the kind of people that you read and that nourish you on a daily basis. Another one I love is Lee Smith, who is conservative. Mm. He's got a piece out about China right now for Tablet Magazine that'll just knock your socks off. It's a, in my view, should win an award. So, so that's what we do. We work. Re, you know, I never thought four years ago I'd be doing a podcast. Mm-hmm. I never thought I'd be editing the critical list. I didn't think I'd be, you know, selling buttons on my Patreon page because I, you know. <laughs> Like, I've been a mainstream journalist, producer, hotshot my whole adult life. Mm. And that part of my life has come to an end because the media is failing at a time, especially around COVID, where we need critical thinking the most and we're not getting it. Now, we had a um, a conversation last week with um, uh, Dr. Vladimir Zelenko and I were talking about bureaucracy and I said to him, what do you think about Fauci? What do you think his legacy will be? And I'll just yeah. give you a quick quote of what he said about Fauci. And if you wish to illuminate this, you're, you're very welcome. He mm. said, unquote, quote, um, he's a whore and he has had so many pimps, he doesn't know who his pimp is at the moment. And I thought about it. I thought, now, do I actually cut this out? Because, yeah. but what he was saying in the biblical terms, and he's very religious, was correct. Yeah. What are your thoughts on on Fauci and his credibility and his legacy? So here's what I would say. You know, I'm not going to use an inflammatory phrase. I'm going to just stick to what I know. I went to interview Tony Fauci about the Bactrim story that I told you about. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had a it was a very heated exchange. It actually didn't run because the documentary didn't end up being produced. But This was a guy who was extremely rigid in his thinking. And there's an article that actually tells this story from another perspective by uh, a gay man whose name is Sean Strub, and it's called Whitewashing AIDS History. And he takes Fauci on for later saying that the the conversation with Michael Callan didn't happen that way. He didn't have the authority to do what needed to be done, yada, yada. And Mm. he he takes him on very, very powerfully there because that was, in my view and in the view of many people who lived through that time, uh, one of the lowest points in the AIDS movement. They knew they had a product that was, you know, a drug that was working well. But here's the other thing he did. Um, I'm just going to hold this book up. I hope you can see it. Mm-hmm. It's called And the Band Played On. It is my Bible for science and medical reporting written by a guy named Randy Schiltz, who was a bit of a mentor of mine covering AIDS back in the day. He was a gay man. He wrote for the San Francisco Chronicle. He He was... I think this was actually made into a film, but he was a very, very solid AIDS reporter. And he tells a story in this book that's interesting, too, that I'd actually forgotten about. But back in the early, early days, I re- uh, there was a study that came out. It was absolutely false that said that children in households of people with AIDS could get AIDS through casual contact, right? Mm. We know this is totally, mm. absolutely not true. Tony Fauci wrote about that as if it was true. And when the shit hit the fan about that study causing what was an AIDS panic and discrimination against gay men for years, Tony Fauci admitted he'd never actually even read the paper when he wrote this this um, this conclusion about it and and repeated repeated that you could get AIDS through casual contact, as said in the study to the news media who dutifully reported it out. Mm. This was a low point. So what I'm saying is, you know, Tony Fauci is a flawed person, as Mm. we all are. Mm. I think the bigger question is not about Tony Fauci. The bigger question is, 
why is someone like that the kind of person that they want leading epidemics? Why does the media put him on a magazine wearing sunglasses like he's a rock star when he was in charge of the very COVID policy that Joe Biden and everybody else was saying was so terrible? Trump wasn't running the policy. Mm. Fauci was. And yet he escapes all mm. criticism by all media always on every decision and everything he says. Let's wear masks. Let's not wear masks. Let's wear three masks. Right. You know, and, let's, well, let's right? wear a pillow. Yeah, let's wear a pillow. At one point he said we need to wear goggles because we're like, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's insane. I'm not saying the guy should be run out of town. These, that's a really, really hard job that he mm, has. Mm. I, I don't envy him at all. But he needs to be held accountable. And the media in the U.S. are reluctant. They, 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 not just reluctant, they just won't do it. I mean, I've never seen him be asked a hard question. He's like Bill Gates, right? He's one of these untouchable mm. people they have on speed dial. Mm. And, and that's all well and good to say the media is failing and the NIH is failing. But in the real world, people are dying. And they're dying not just from COVID. They're dying from bad COVID policy, mm. like lockdowns. Dr. Zelenko, yes. just on Bill Gates, um, said, uh, <laughs> I think 2015, where Gates had said something like, we need to have 300 million less people. And he said, why yeah. would you take a vaccine that's been pushed by a guy that says we need 300 million less people. And I'm thinking, well, that probably makes sense. I mean, but that's another conversation and uh, one that I'm not going to touch at the moment because my no. I have limited resources to legal funds. Yeah, no, but, you can't. No, you can't. But but it no. does beg the question. And the question is, you've got all these guys. Mm. Look, I, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. No. Um, but you've got all these guys flying around to Davos having conversations that we're not privy to. And my here's my fear. My and, and that to me is very undemocratic, right? If you're going to go to Davos and you're a paid politician, you're you know a politician, we want to know what's going on in there, mm. right? Mm. You can't have those secret meetings on our dime. We want to know what's going on. But more's the point. Here's my fear. My fear. And I cannot prove this. I'm merely blue-skying about it. But my fear is that this lockdown switch is perhaps a test for lockdowns to be used in the future, maybe on climate change policy. I don't know. I can't I prove it, I, but I, it, I it is a thought I had. No, Sorry? it's uh, Mark Morano uh, believes that, and many others do, uh, that... Um, now that it's an emergency, um, they can do a lot of interesting things. I'm not going to say much more at the moment, but they can do a lot of things. The, um, the government at the moment in Biden administration loved the word emergency. So yeah. uh, it's an amazing what you can do if you're operating under an emergency. So, Well, you know, I mean, remember, I don't know if you saw this recently, but Neil Ferguson, you know, Professor Lockdown, as he's now a called. A great mind, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. He said in an interview something very telling. He said, you know, the, the CCP did their lockdown policy and, and I really wanted to try it, but I didn't think we'd get away with it here. <laughs> and he was, even he was surprised at how quickly democratic governments accepted this draconian response, untried, never tested policy that would ruin the lives of the citizenry and then use police to enforce mm. it, right? It's a very scary world uh, in Australia, New Zealand. I mean, actually anywhere in the West uh, where they're not embracing early treatment. I think the um, there are some serious questions that we need to ask. If somebody wants to hear some fabulous podcast and find out more about Trish Wood and her uh, struggles at home, <laughs> locked, locked down, <laughs> locked in, can't get out, you know, doors, you know, keys thrown away. How do they do that? Yeah. Yeah. So the podcast is Trish Wood is Critical and it's on Apple, Spotify and Stitcher. And I have a, um, a website, which is trishwoodpodcast.com. Their critical list is on there as well. You can, um, uh, 
subscribe there and you can also subscribe to the podcast itself on any of the platforms that you're that you're listening to it on but my email is info at trishwoodpodcast.com and if you don't do anything else but this email me if i'm in a good mood i'll send you a button for free um, because we love to hear from people and what's so satisfying for me is that I hear from people who say, you're keeping me sane, you're keeping me sane. I don't know if you have this experience, Mike, but I can speak to fewer and fewer people about what's going on in the world because everybody's kind of brainwashed. Mm. and Right? So I have like my best girlfriend and Matt, my wonderful producer here, and my husband who's brilliant. But but I'm like, if I bump into somebody on the street, I'm sort of worried about what they're going to say because if they're in major COVID panic mode, I, I feel really uncomfortable about it. It's that fear thing, isn't it? Them. It's that fear yeah. thing. And when I was, I was at the gym yesterday trying to, uh, you know, trying to look after the temple, and at the moment the temple is in great, <laughs> great, um, <laughs> in a very bad way, let me tell you that. But the, I was talking okay. to one of the gym guys, and I said, hey, can you believe it in uh, one of our states, there, um, the, the uh, Premier has come out to say that once COVID is finished uh, and once the pandemic is gone, he's still going to keep in these border controls and follow you and make sure you register just in case you bring in a virus. Anyway, that can't be true. Is that was, true? That it, can't be true. But a, a Keith a, a, a McGowan from WA, but he actually rescinded that a bit later and said, look, uh, we, you know, <laughs> legally, we really can't do that, but we're going to uh, still check your car in case you have, wait for it, drugs. Now, if you look at the map of Australia, Western Australia is almost half the size of Australia. So it's almost, uh, it's, it's, uh, half the size of America with a straight line down the middle. So we're wondering how he's going to do it. And legality wise, uh, is he allowed to? But this guy though said to me at the gym, he said, but they're saving our life. And that's all that counts. Did he say that? Did yes. He and he, he said, said yeah. lockdowns work because look, there's no COVID. And I, <laughs> and I thought, no, I'm not going to get into this because it will go on forever and then he'll call the police and they'll take me yeah. away for being some yeah. dissident. But yeah. great conversation and would love to do more of these. And I think COVID is uh, it's going to rear its ugly head for, uh, for a while yet. So maybe we can uh, do more and uh, have a longer conversation. I'd love to anytime. Thanks for having me and demand the data. Trish Wood from the TrishWoodPodcast.com. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. And that's it for Asia Pacific Today. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Mike Ryan.